So yes, sometimes learning new things, yes, this show might make you blush. Yes, hearing me, you might cringe at some of the things that I'm saying. And you might think, oh, how could she say that? Or, you know, whatever it is. But like the more you listen and the more you understand that this is a natural part of all of us, it's okay to talk about it. We're not anomalies, the three of us just talking about this. We're here because we want to help people have more fulfilling lives. Sexuality is part of that fulfillment. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dotches marmette We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hello, and welcome to episode 122 of the Art of Living Well podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And before we dive into the episode, we are so excited to share our new podcast episode format that we will be dropping monthly. It's called a 15-minute health transformation audit, and we will be bringing you, our community members, on our show for a 15-minute health transformation audit where we will guide you to identify what's holding you back from your ideal health and wellness and we'll analyze together with you, and then you can walk away with a tangible action step. We are so excited about these mini episodes. As integrative health practitioners and health coaches, we love doing this kind of work with you. So grab a cup of tea, get cozy, check out last week's episode 121 to hear from our community member Kim. Even better, we would love to have you on. So email theartoflivingwellpodcast at gmail.com and let us know you'd like to sign up for your 15-minute health transformation audit. And now let's welcome today's guest, Dr. Lori Petito. Dr. Lori is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in sexual wellness, and she has been a practicing psychotherapist for over 30 years. For the last three decades, she has been on radio and television dispensing sex and relationship advice. For 22 years, she was the host of the nightly Canadian syndicated show Passion, and she is a regular contributor to various magazines, newspapers, and television shows. She is also the president of the Sexual Health Network of Quebec and the past president of the Canadian Sex Research Forum. Dr. Lori is the author of The Sex Bible for People Over 50. She is also the director of the Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center, an online sexual health information platform. Dr. Lori has done two TEDx talks on the subject of sexuality, and she hosts a weekly podcast, Passion with Dr. Lori and John Pohl, and it is available on all platforms. In today's episode, we talk about why sex is a taboo topic, what are the benefits of having a healthy and vibrant sex life. Um, We talk about issues that people have with sex and even some of the common myths about sex and aging and what types of things need to change both biologically and emotionally for people. We talked about couples who have been together a long time and who have potentially lost that spark or passion in the bedroom and what are some techniques they can use to reconnect with their partner. And then as parents, you know, we talk about our teens and what they can do to have a healthy sex life and to monitor what they see on social media and even to how do you have these kinds of conversations with your teens. Dr. Lori incorporates so much fantastic knowledge into this episode, and she leaves us with so many simple and practical tips that we can implement immediately into our lives. So we are so excited to dive right in with Dr. Lori Batito. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Thrive Chiropractic. 
I was first introduced to Thrive Chiropractic over five years ago for kinesiology-based food sensitivity testing. I was so amazed by this non-invasive and inexpensive technique that I took my son to have testing done, which confirmed some of his food sensitivities. Both my son and I now have regular tune-ups, and even my leery husband has felt the immense benefits from receiving chiropractic care, including cupping. With over 25 years of clinical experience, the doctors at Thrive Chiropractic, located in Minnetonka, Minnesota, combine their passion for wellness with a strong expertise in effective treatment approaches. When you first come to Thrive Chiropractic, the doctors are focused on helping you feel better as soon as possible, and they recognize that one type of treatment or technique does not work for everyone. Your comprehensive exam, personal goals, and individual concerns help the doctors tailor your custom treatment plan for maximum results. Thrive Chiropractic's integrative approach offers holistic and effective healthcare with a full spectrum of complementary products and services, including acupuncture, massage, food sensitivity testing, CBD, and premium supplements. As a special offer, Thrive Chiropractic would like to invite listeners of our podcast to experience the gift of health with a $25 new patient visit, which includes the initial consultation, a comprehensive exam, any necessary x-rays, and first adjustments. Simply visit the website at www.thrivechiromn.com or call 952-746-5612 and reference the Arts of Living Well podcast. When you're seeking effective, non-invasive treatment approaches to support your health goals, let Thrive Chiropractic be your partner in wellness. Call or book online today. Hi, Dr. Lori. We are both really excited to have you on our podcast as we've been wanting to have a sex therapist on our show for quite some time now. And Marty and I both first heard you on another podcast and we immediately reached out and knew you'd be a great fit for our audience. So thank you so much for coming on um, our show today. I'm very happy to share uh, anything, answer questions, whatever it is. It's been my mission my whole career just to, you know, get people to have healthy uh, sexuality. And so whatever helps is good. Great. Well, we know everyone has a story and we would love to just hear your journey of how you became a psychologist specializing in sexual wellness um, and really diving into this work for the past 30 years. Yeah, it's been a long road, um, long, fun road. It's a a really great topic to, um, to focus on. So, I, I mean, I, I got to my PhD and it kind of uh, didn't go straight there. I ended up doing like four other degrees before that, but always in within the helping profession. And sometime during an undergrad, um, I, I met a teacher, this was at McGill University, and uh, she was basically teaching the only course in sexuality that existed at the university at the time. So you're talking like many years ago, four, you know, whatever, 35 years ago and this ages me but yes and um I wanted and I got I was so like it was such a fascinating like I was always interested in behavior but sexual behavior became even more fascinating to me and so I just kind of followed her route like uh you know she had mentored with a specific person and I and I went and met with him and I started doing training and what have you so uh, within all my other graduate degrees and what have you, I also did this additional two-year uh, training program. But people often ask, like, when did you want to do this? And I, you know, it's, as you get older, your memory gets worse, so you kind of forget. But one time, I don't remember how many years ago it was, I ran into a high school teacher of mine, and she said to me, this is 20 years later or whatever, said to me, hey, did you ever become the sex therapist you said you wanted to be? And I said, did I talk about that when I was 15, 16? <laughs> she says, you did. And I was, what? So that was like a big, you know, I was like, okay. So then I started piecing together. It's true. When I was like in grade 10, grade 11, uh, my friends would come to ask me questions about sexuality, not because I had, was particularly like uh, knowledgeable, but I was able to talk about it. I have a big mouth and I guess I, I don't have much shyness around me. So it was like an easy thing. And I, and if I didn't know the answer, I said, I'll go look, I'll find it for you, you know? Uh, and of course, but back then I had access to very little information. We didn't have the internet. 
So my biggest source of information was a cosmopolitan magazine. Yeah. Every issue had like how to give a great blow job or how to, you know, uh, and that was it. So that, you know, and I had encyclopedia. So I, I could do the biology and I could do the, you know, that was about it. Didn't have any other, anything else. So uh, I guess it evolved from there. I think it just, it was a, a topic that just wasn't, I was very open about not which is interesting because I wasn't necessarily raised in a household that, you know, I had immigrant parents. We didn't talk about sex, but I was a bit rebellious in the sense that I would push the envelope a lot. So this was me pushing the envelope, you know, like talking about a taboo subject, you know. Uh, so it just was something that was easier for me. And then uh, I got into almost immediately into my career got into radio and media very, very soon. And that became my career. Wasn't where I wanted, where it wasn't where I expected it to go, or where I was driven to go, but it, it's where I landed. And that was just, I was working at a, sec, a clinic, a sexual dysfunction clinic where I trained and, you know, in, in walks this guy from a radio station who says, Hey, we want to do a show about sexuality. Anybody here interested? And we were a few sex therapists there. And I said, yeah, sure. I was young, whatever. I said, if it, if it blows, it blows and I'll never do it again. And I ended up doing that particular show became huge, had a huge following in Montreal. And I did that for like nine years. And then um, not, it was like a, a weekly show. And then that same guy who initially started the show was transferred to another radio station. They invited me to do a nightly show on the air. And so I did 22 years of nightly. Sex wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so you've heard it all. I've heard it yes. all. I've done about 6,000, five to 6,000 episodes, uh, you know, one hour nightly show. Didn't get much sleep for many, many years, but anyway, that was, uh, that was then. And then I, when that ended, I moved over into podcasting. And so through that, I've done television, radio, print. Uh, so it, it's really been about educating the public uh, in, in, and talking about sexuality in such a way that just makes it much more accessible, even if it is from a science-based, evidence-based position. And, you know, I have a private practice as well. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I focus on um, uh, marriage counseling, marriage therapy, individual therapy, sexual dysfunction. I mean, I, you know, all kinds of stuff, but I like to focus on the sexuality stuff. Uh, that's what most people seek me out for anyway. So, and here I am just, you know. Amazing. Well, we have so many questions for you. (laughs) So many questions. Anything you want. Before we dive in, why do you think sex and pleasure is such a taboo topic? And how can we change that or address that? I wish I knew. Uh, I wish I knew why it was so damn taboo, considering we are all sexual Every human being, whether they choose to have sex or not, doesn't change the fact that we are all sexual beings. We all have body parts that bring us pleasure. And yet it starts very young. If you think about it, when you're when you're playing with your little babies, your your one-year-olds, and you're going, show me your nose, show me your elbow. When do you ever say, show me your penis, show me your <laughs> testicles, show me your clitoris, you know? But why? Why? They're in the bath. Like, why are you avoiding those body parts? So from a very young age, we're already taught. We don't even say those words. We don't even, you know, and when we do address it, we say, oh, look at your little flower and oh, look at your little wrinkle wrinkle or whatever it is, you know, like why aren't we using proper terminology? So it starts there. That's where it begins. And then, of course, as you, you know, your kids get older, it gets even more uncomfortable to to really talk about it. But it's the climate at home where there is no talk about sexuality. So by not talking, you've made it a taboo, right? It's what you don't do also. It's not what you do do, but what you don't do. So, you know, a a good example is when my, uh, so I have two, two kids, they're grown now, but somebody asked my daughter once, Oh, when did you learn about sex? And she had such a great answer. She said, she thought about it for a minute and she says, I've always known, like there is no one moment. I've always known. It's like, it's just been part of the family conversations and, you know, using proper terminology. They 
my kids knew about pleasure and, and, you know, like I remember, you know, at two years old, like, Oh, when, you know, my daughter's in the bath, she goes, Oh, that feels good. It's tickle. It's my tickle spot or something. I said, yeah, that's called your clitoris and it's there to make you feel good. So, you know, touch it whenever you want. It's okay. And, and it just, you know, it was just nonchalant. So when we make it like such a, uh, you know, mommy turns red when the word, you know, clitoris comes up or vulva or whatever. Well, you think your kids aren't picking up on that? So we need to practice together as adults talking about this in an open manner so that we transmit this as a normal part of life. And we're able to talk about this. And then, you know, of course, we talk about privacy and why. Like, we don't want to just just be bad. We want like, yes, there's, of course, it's good and whatever, but it has a context and here's the context and here's how we protect you and here's how you have to protect yourself. And if you look at the research, the, the children who are whose parents don't talk to them about sexuality are at much higher risk for exploitation. You know, so it's it's a protective thing by talking about them. It's not if I talk about it, it means you're going to go do it. Like, that's just a myth. And that, that is not the case, you know? And I think that's like such an old school way of thinking about it. I think that's how a lot of us were probably raised. Um, so I'm glad that you're here sharing the message. Do you see a difference? Like you're in Montreal in different parts of the world, as far as like different countries having, you know, maybe being yeah. a little bit more open or progressive in that way where they're having those conversations earlier? Well, definitely there's huge differences from wherever you come from in the world. So part of my work has also been um, uh, like I, I joined uh, forces with uh, a big porn company where I established a sexual wellness, like an educational site on their porn site so that people who were watching had a place to go for real information, evidence-based information. And through and there's a QA section there that people can respond to. So I see the questions that come from all over the world there. And I can see where people have zero education. The only education they get is through porn. And I'm like, this is really sad, right? Like this is, which is one of the reasons why I did that. So that I have access to people who wouldn't normally have access to sexual wellness information. So yes, in different parts of the world, you're going to have different access to education. And of course, if you're in the, you know, in the States, for example, where you have abstinence-based education, you're unlikely to get parents who are going to talk openly about sexuality when the, they demand their schools not to even talk about sexuality. But that's also where you have the highest rates of teen pregnancy, the highest rates of sexually transmitted infections, the highest rates of pornography use in those repressive environments. So how does that help anybody, right? It's, uh, and we already know, if you look at the evidence, that um, abstinence-based education doesn't work to prevent any of that any of that but comprehensive sex education does i'm fortunate I, I live in a country where we have much more of that and some provinces better than others and do it better it's not perfect but we have a little bit more of a an openness to making sure it's part of the curriculum and that we do discuss it but i'm also very well aware that there are other countries that do it better you know, I'm thinking of the Netherlands or Sweden, and they have amazing educational programs. So we have a lot to learn. Like there's a lot, you know, and we can't, well, it's been politicized, which it's part of life. Like, why should this be something that it's health? Like it shouldn't be part of that. You know, everybody should learn every, it doesn't mean you're giving them permission. I think we have to get away from that notion. Here's the information, look, you know, make, make good decisions. We can teach people how to make good decisions, get them to think critically, but just telling somebody don't do it, know that, you know, this is dangerous. We know children's minds. We know teenagers. Do they listen? They don't listen. They're driven by something else. They, you know, their prefrontal cortex isn't developed and well-developed until they're well into their twenties. So, you know, they're going to make stupid decisions. Better to arm them with information, if you ask me. So while we're on the topic of teenagers, Stephanie and I both have teenagers. We both have sons and daughters. Uh -huh. And um, 
you know, I think that these kids today learn a lot from social media and TikTok and I'm sure there's some porn happening. I don't, I kind of don't want to know about it, but I'm sure it's happening. But then I worry, you know, I try and talk to my daughters and they're like, we know mom, we know everything. You don't need to tell us like we know. And it's like, I don't know how to open the door and have these healthy conversations when they're like, no, we don't want to talk to you about this. So that's a good point, right? So when you talk at a young age with kids about this, it's, you know, once you, if you start talking to them when they're already teenagers, they're like, I don't want to hear it. Like that's, you know, we already know, don't worry, but you don't know what they know. That's the reality. So some of the best things to do is finding um, teachable moments or bringing up scenarios with them and getting their opinion. So treating them like you would, you know, I'm curious to know what you think about this. Hey, I heard about this Uh, this girl that gave birth at 16 or I don't know, whatever story you want to make up. But what do you think about that? How do you think she handled it or could handle it? What do you think you would do in a situation like that? Like if you bring up another, not about them, don't ask them, what are you doing? You know, are you doing, are you having sex with your boyfriend? They're like, stop, you know, don't forget to use condoms. Like, no, you want to, you want to see how they think about this, right? You want them to open up how they think. So they may not be talking about themselves, but you get a very good idea of uh, what's happening around them and their influences. Find out, like when you're watching a show with them, there's so many stupid reality TV shows, but it may hurt you to watch them. But if that's what they're watching, watch it. And then use one of those examples and say, what do you think about that? You know, what do you think about all these filters being used or what do you think about whatever it is? And it's a really great way. I used to love having conversations in the car because they were trapped and uh, you know, it was a good place to start. Well, and one of the things that I worry about, not worry about, but like, you know, yes, my kids know about, you know, like you said, diseases and contraception and, you know, being leery of strangers and all, you know, frat parties and all of that kind of stuff. But like, What about, especially for the teenage girls, knowing that they want to make sure they're comfortable and they're being sexually pleasured if they're in fact in some sort of sexual relationship and that it's not just about pleasing the other person or, you know, how do you, how do you raise children and teenagers to, to know that? Because I feel like our society is so much not about that. Well, as somebody who has daughters myself, it was really important for me to empower them to make decisions for themselves. You do what feels good for you, right? So girls today will choose to have sex because they want to have sex because it feels good for them, but we still slut shame them, right? Like girls are still in this position. There's still a double standard that if they choose sex, somehow it's not okay. But if the guy chooses sex, well, that's okay. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we have to we have to start moving away from that. So empowering them to say you can choose when, how, what, where that's in that's your body, your choice. Um, and, and you know, get, teaching them what healthy relationships are all about as well. Uh, you can give them examples and say, do you think this is healthy? Is that healthy? Like how what, how would you handle a partner that tells you I'm jealous because I, I love you and I. I don't want you to see any friends or I, I forbid you to, uh, you know, have friends that are guys. How would you handle a situation like that? Right. So and then you'll get to see how kind of how they think and you can have a conversation about that. But sometimes there's a fear like do, you know, of empowering girls because, you know, we all hope they will you know, let keep them virginal. Like we don't want them to, you know, get it, get involved, but that's unrealistic. And for me, what was important was if you're going to have sex, which I'm assuming you will, considering statistically, most uh, people have sex around the age of 17. So I'll just assume I'm not asking you directly. I'm just assuming then what's important is that you understand that you shouldn't be experiencing pain on a regular basis. It should feel good. So if it doesn't feel good, something's up. Let's talk about, you know, then please, you know, come to me or talk to your doctor or we'll figure this out. But you don't need to. Pain shouldn't be some uh, suffering shouldn't be part of sex. It should feel good. And you, you know, so that kind of lets them know that 
yeah, of course there should be pleasure for you. Like why else, you know, it should be pleasurable for you. And if it's not, we need to look at why. Yes, and that's such a good question. I'm glad Marnie asked it because I'm in a very similar situation where they just say they know everything. And these are such good examples, like real life situations that you can, you know, start to have that dialogue. And I love the car example, like that. And it's usually like a short trip, right? So you don't have that much time with them. And it just starts the conversation and gets them thinking. But but I think too, you know, kind of thinking back to my teenage years, there's also pressure on girls just to do it because they feel pressured like they should and not enjoy it. And you're doing it for the guy. You're not doing it for yourself. You know, I'm just speaking of girls and I'm sure it goes both ways too. So again, that empowerment is just so important and really to understand why you're doing it, you know? And the issue of consent, right? These days we have to talk about what consent is and consent is in submission. Like you, somebody pressuring you and you saying yes is not consent, right? right? So we have to talk about what's enthusiastic consent. That's the important thing. So, and, and having these conversations with our kids is really important, but the, the topic of consent comes up when they're four or five years old. And it's not about sexual consent. It's about, you can't take somebody else's toy. You have to ask, you know, like you, you, yeah. you start talking about what consent actually is in many different contexts. So when the time comes, when it comes to sexual consent, now we talk about how one consents, what consent isn't. And if you're drunk, can you consent and what's legal and what's not and how you can get in trouble and, uh, and, and how you, everybody should be very much aware of what's going on. If you're going to have a healthy experience and, and not have regrets, right? Cause you want to uh, minimize uh, your regretful uh, sexual experiences, obviously. Yeah, and it it does sometimes feel like teenage girls are in a no-win situation. It's like and, and you're damned too. if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> well, but if and but you know, it's interesting because I hear from guys too the pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Like what about guys who don't want to? And guys who feel like they want to get consent, but then feel like they're less of a man because they're not taking charge or, so it's very confusing for both. It's confusing for men too, as to what I do. Like what we see in the media is a slice of, of young men, you know, the, co- the, the college stories and, and, and what have you, but is that your average guy? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I think if we're raising boys, right, which we need to be doing more of and not just letting them it's okay they're boys boys will be boys can't have that attitude we we have to teach boys how to treat girls and we have to teach girls how to treat men too and and also how to um be respectful of themselves and and uh and and feel like they have control over themselves yeah absolutely so love this conversation about teens but we also want to kind of pivot and talk about People our generation a little bit. <laughs> There's so much to talk about, okay? I mean, we could go on so for much. hours and hours and hours. We, we totally could. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, let's just start out like, what are some of the common issues that you see couples for? Uh, the most common issue that I see is uh, desire discrepancy issues. So where one wants it a lot more than the other. So when that, you know, those people show up in the office, my job is to evaluate, well, what's happening here, right? Where is this coming from? Why is this going on? Uh, Is this a physical issue? Is this a relationship issue? Is this simply just one person who just doesn't have the same, just not the same, which is normal? Like, you know, why should you be the same? But then a lot of the work I do is education-based in terms of understanding also the differences between men and women and how they experience uh, desire. So I actually did a TED Talk on the subject. If um, It's uh, about sex and long-term relationships, just to explain, and also uh, female sexuality. So how, how that can evolve for women. Um, I'm talking generally now. So this isn't true of every woman, right. every man. So please understand. But but this is what I see most often. It's not that uh, women lose the 
desire per se to have sex, but they might lose the horniness. They might lose the spontaneous desire. But if you ask those same women, well, when you have sex with your partner, do you enjoy it? They Most often they say, yeah, it's great. Like, love it. It's great. We have fun. It's wonderful. They just don't have the oomph to, you know, just to, to get <laughs> yeah. there, right? And, you know, think of life and how it is. And women tend to have much more on their minds and it's much more difficult for them to separate out the everyday stresses and anxieties and worries and all of these things to put it on the back burner and just enjoy the moment having sex. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever had a massage, you go sit on the massage table. How often do you actually just feel the massage? You probably are like, what is done? What, what already? You know why? Because your mind has been wandering the whole time. You're not actually appreciating and enjoying the moment because we do have a bit of a harder time doing that. So the key here is that you may not have uh, spontaneous desire for sex, meaning it's not just the throbbing in your clitoris suddenly that says, Ooh, I want to have sex. right <laughs> yeah. now. Um, you know, but you are responsive. In other words, your desire is responsive, which means that if you are, if the conditions are right, meaning you're in a relaxed state and you decide you're going to have sex and your partner starts to stimulate you, that stimulation should trigger your desire, which means your desire has become responsive, but it, it needs the, it needs something, right? It's like a car that's in neutral. It needs an action to get it into drive. And think about guys are always in drive for the most part, not uh, some guys are in the reverse situation as well. Sometimes we see the reverse, but you know, they're always in drive, which means it doesn't take all that much to kind of get the, to get it going. Right. But women are in neutral. And oftentimes though, women come thinking they're dead or their, or their partners say something wrong with my wife, fix her, you know? And it's like, oh, oh, she's not dead. You know, she's not dead. Like you just have to know how to get her going. And then part of it too, is examining what's holding her back from choosing sex. So choosing to be with a partner, because what drives us may not be horny, but closeness, right? I want to be close to my partner. It's so nice. It feels so good. I want to be, feel that intimacy. And of course, I know there's pleasure with it and all of these things. But if your relationship is problematic for whatever, if there's resentments between you, if there's anger, if there's all kinds of stuff, are you actually going to choose to want to be close with your partner? So you need to have some warmth in your heart to put yourself into that situation. So in therapy, we, we kind of figure out, okay, what are the, what are the roadblocks? Are some of these roadblocks relationship issues? Sometimes they are. Sometimes I hear complaints from women like, you know, I, I feel like my husband is like a third child at home. And, uh, you know, and well, if you, if you perceive your husband to be a child, you're not going to be attracted to him. Like it's tip, you know, it's, it's a, a blockage, right? You, you're not going to be attracted to your own child. So, and that's what it feels like. So it, it can feel like that and you start to lose that attraction. So there's things that have to be done uh, to, to kind of fix that situation. And, uh, you know, sometimes guys don't quite get it because for them, it feels like a hunger. So they don't understand why you're not hungry. So they think there's something wrong with you because I'm always hungry. Why aren't you hungry? You know, uh, they just don't understand that their hunger, that your hunger needs to be stimulated. I often give the example of going to a restaurant. You know, if you're if you're hungry, you're the one who's going to be suggesting let's go out to eat. So the person who's not hungry is not generally going to suggest it. So the the other person is going to say, OK, I'll join you like I'll, I'll go with you. I may not eat, but I'll, I'll go with you. And then you are at the restaurant and your partner orders a really nice steak and you smell it and you're, oh, that smells, oh, that looks really good. Can I have a bite? And then you get a bite and then you're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get my own. And then suddenly now you're both enjoying a meal, right? So your meal was like your, your hunger was stimulated by the odors, by the, the taste, by all of this stuff. So it's a little bit the same in sex. You need to be, you need to be stimulated to open up that, uh, that hunger and that desire. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but yeah, no, it does. It does. So so what can, so from what you're saying, if uh, older, not even older, but let's say a couple is having some trouble in the bedroom and the man wants more than the woman or the woman wants more than the man, whatever, it's probably the reverse more often. Uh -huh. um, 
what are some techniques or suggestions you make for people to kind of reconnect with their partner? Well, part of it is the first understanding what is it that your partner needs, right? So the person with, we know what the, the high sex drive person wants. They want sex. <laughs> but for you to get sex, you have to give your partner what she wants. And maybe what she wants is affection that doesn't lead to sex. Maybe I just want you to touch me in a loving, tender way. Instead of, you know, when, when you come and give me a hug, you're not just grabbing my breasts. You're not just squeezing my ass. Like you're not, it's not a sexual touch. It's a loving touch. Maybe that's what I need a little bit more of. Maybe I need you to show me that you care about how fatigued I am and you want to help me because you want me to rest and you want me to feel good. You know, so these are the like you have to find out what it is that I need more of. Maybe I need you to not be so critical of me and not yell at me, you know, uh, every day because it takes me a few days to recover every time you do this. And when you do this, I'm not interested in having sex with you. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm this. I'm that. So like what this is why we we need to understand the dynamics of that couple. But if if everything is good, like in many cases, I hear people say we have a great relationship. We love each other. We're best friends. It's all good. Well, what's not happening is you're not putting sex on the table like you have to put it on your radar. You know, you can't just wait, expect it to show up like an uninvited guest or invited, like you've got to invite it in. So part of that is, I and I know people cringe when I say this, but yes, you have to schedule it. And whether- I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, just, <laughs> you have to. And whether, whether you schedule it in your agenda and don't tell your partner, that's fine. Like if your partner is resi- resisted, why don't you just schedule it? But when you schedule it, you're preparing your environment. You're making sure you don't have a bunch of stuff to do before. You're making sure that it's going to be a relaxing, you know, evening or morning or lunch or whatever you you decide. Like you're planning it so that you're prepping the the environment for you because this is what you need, right? It's not as simple as pull down your pants, let's go, let's do it. It's all good. Like You can't shut down the rest of it that quickly. So you need to, if you plan it, you get a chance to shut it all down to be able to really appreciate the moment that you're in. And I'm not saying like spontaneous sex is is great too, but it doesn't, you know, may not happen as often as as it once was, you you once did it because now you have kids, mortgage, family, work, you have to find all the balance with all of that. Whereas when you were dating, you know, you walk through the door and was like, let's do it. You know, there's all this excitement, but you know, once you fast forward into a long-term relationship, sorry, but that feeling kind of goes, you know, out the window a little bit, unless you revive it, unless you create the passion, unless you put effort into making it a little more exciting and spicy and, and what have you. So we have to put the effort into it. I'm wondering, um, how often, and I know I'm, I'm sure there's a range, but how often would you say a, a healthy couple engages in sex? Yeah. That's a great question. And luckily there's research that backs this one up. So that, that's a good thing. So there's a, there was research that was done that looked at, that measured couples' happiness levels with the amount of sex that they had, right? Um, and what they found was that couples who had sex less than once a week were less happy than couples who had sex more than once a week. But couples who had sex once a week or more had the same level of happiness. In other words, so once a week seems to be kind of the sweet spot. Um, So, you know, more than that didn't seem to change their happiness levels, but less than that did. So uh, as a therapist, I always aim for the once a week. Of course, I get clients who, you know, they say it's been months since they've had sex. Like it's not just, you know, it's not just they want, they have it once or twice a week, but now they want it four times a week. It's rare that that, that's the case. But, you know, uh, it's about connecting. It's not just about the sex. It's about how else do you connect outside of the bedroom? And because ultimately, if you, if your partner feels like they don't feel loved except in the bedroom, then they're going to want more sex. 
But if they feel, because des- there's many ways you could feel desired or show desire to your partner. You know, it's like telling your partner, you know what, I'd love, you know, it'd be great to have sex. But I'm just too tired. Like, you know, but, but you're expressing the, this need, this want, it's not necessarily a need, but it's a want. Like I, I would so do you right now, but I can't move, you know? So, <laughs> and, and there's research to show that that actually has an effect that 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 actually makes the other person feel good and so maybe not as um you know after the the sexuality because ultimately this is what i see people want to feel desired people want to feel wanted people want to feel loved we all do that's a universal thing so if some people get that through sex because they may not get it through other means well you know, maybe we need to adjust in, in other areas. So being able to be affectionate and close and show, use loving words and be really loving towards your partner makes a huge difference. And I can tell you that as people get older and I see a switch in men too, as men get older, it's not about frequency as much as it is about wanting that deep connection. So they become more, you know, they, we join up at some point where we both want the intimacy more than we want the sex, even though the sex is great, the intimacy matters. So tough it out until you're in your fifties and then you'll maybe <laughs> then you'll get that, you know? <laughs> so what are, what are your thoughts on sex toys? I think they're great. I think sex toys are, they're great. If, if it's what you want to explore, you know, some people use them, some people don't, a lot of people use them though. And I think sex toys in couples is a great idea. So I wrote a book called the sex Bible for people over 50 in which there is a chapter on sex toys, because as you get older, you need more stimulation to get to the same place. So the clitoris may, you know, the, the feelings in our bodies change the, uh, I mean, there's lots, lots of changes that happen. We can have an entire other show on just those changes, but sex toys help, uh, kind of get you to the same place, maybe faster, you know, your partner is also aging. So maybe his hands aren't moving as fast as you need them to, or as hard or whatever. So that the sex toys are a nice addition to it. And, um, I like, I don't know why anybody would have a problem with sex toys at all. Like it's just a, a sexual aid, you know, just help. It makes it better. Or sometimes, yes, sometimes it, it, it's the, it's all you need, you know? So definitely encourage sex toys if it helps you keep going and the, the whole use it or lose it thing does, you know, there is some truth to that too. You want to keep the blood flowing, going to your genitals to keep them healthy. So it's one way of taking care of your vagina is to keep that blood flow going. So even if you're not having sex with your partner, have sex with yourself, like just get that, that blood flow going and same thing for men. So going deeper into that. So what are like the benefits of having a healthy and vibrant sex life? Kind of to what you're saying with the blood flow, but just in general, like other aspects of your life or. Well, we, there's lots of research on that probably the, I think the first chapter of my book talks about all the benefits. There's, there's no doubt, there's no downside to it. There's only benefits to it. So we know that people who have regular sex live longer, look younger, have better immune systems, have more satisfying relationships, have better cardio health, have better blood pressure, uh, less chance of stroke, less chance. I mean, there's all kinds of benefits to remember what, what, what is sex? What does it do? It increases the blood flow. It gets your heart rate going. It's a form of exercise. Like it's all good things, right? It, it connects people. I'm talking about sex within a you know certain context, obviously. Uh, so there's no bad reasons for sex. There's really only good reasons for sex. <laughs> Which no one really talks about. I mean, they talk about it in this space, but to kind of go back to our earlier conversation, no one's having a conversation. And it's funny when you said immune systems, because Marnie and I are leading a workshop like in two hours after we record this on boosting your immunity. So we do have exercise. We're going to have to put sex in there now. Yes, Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Lots of sex and you won't get COVID. I'm just kidding. Look at the the research though. There is uh, definitely... uh, there's definitely proof that this uh, this does help because ultimately it's 
it's good, you know, besides it being a form of exercise, it's also good for your mental health, right? And that, like when your couple feels good and you feel like you're on a good path, you feel good. Like just look at what happens after sex, that the, all those hormones that are released, it helps with pain reduction. Why do they tell you if you have a headache, have sex, sex, you know, gets rid of headaches, doesn't cause headaches. It gets rid of headaches, you know, for the most part, except for a few people that get headaches from sex. But aside from that, it actually is the cure for, uh, for pain. It's a, a great cure for menstrual cramps. You know, the orgasm is, um, very beneficial <laughs> for all kinds of things. So there's only good reasons for it. And then the other part of it too, is like, okay, maybe you don't have much desire, but you also, but you can still experience pleasure. So why deny oneself pleasure? It's, you know, I don't care how old you are. You could be 90. Your clitoris still works. Like your parts still work. You can still get pleasure. So we just have to get the message out there, which is one of the reasons I wrote that book. Cause I was getting older and I was like, all my friends are getting older. And I said, I'll be damned if we have to give it all up. You know, like, and because I was hearing from people, oh, I'm 60 years old, it's over, my sex life's done, who cares? It's like, no, it doesn't have to be, wait, you know, so. So is it a myth? I, I don't remember where I heard this, but that women's sex drive actually increases as they get older and men's decreases, or is that is that not true? <clears throat> Sometimes that happens, but what you're hearing is the myth about women peak past 40, right? And like, it's the age that the, the the peak sexuality. So what's interesting is the peak is the same for men and women. If you talk about hormones, we all peak around the same time when it comes to testosterone in our bodies or whatever. The difference is, is that women become much more comfortable with their sexuality as they get older. And when they're more comfortable and more open, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what I want. This is how you're going to touch me. I'm going to, you know, I'm not doing this just for you. I'm doing it for me too. Like we, so we kind of get rid of some of that baggage. And this is why, if you look on, you know, one of the, one of the most popular porn uh, searches is MILF. Uh, You know, uh, I don't know if you know what that is. Mothers Um, (laughs) And why? Because this experienced, past 40 woman is the one that has the confidence to say what she wants and to ask for what she wants and caring less about what people think and what have you. And I see this as women get even older, right? I talk Mm -hmm. to women in their fifties who are more sexual than ever and feel way comfortable, even though their boobs are hanging and they're wrinkled and saggy they don't care it it has nothing to do with how sexual you are you know it's not like they are more confident with themselves and the the 50 plus women who I know who have been single and dating will tell me it's like guys don't care about where if your nipples hang down or straight up they really don't (laughs) this is not not, they just want skin like they're okay you know (laughs) they just like like naked it's it's all good and they and this was a big realization for a lot of women to to increase their confidence especially ones that were getting divorced or what have you that were feeling like they were competing with young women but it's not what men are looking for the older men are looking for women their age. They're not, I mean, you have some obviously that are going for the younger, but by and large, that's not what's happening. So that's a myth too, right? Because a lot of women are like, oh, I'm not going to bother. Men only want young chicks. Well, no, that's not the case. I love this. It's like empowering women. And I love that you said like confidence, just confidence in themselves, confidence in their body, regardless of what it looks like at what age they know what they want and they can ask for it. Yeah, so exactly. I think that's great. So one question we have for you as we're in like, you know, year two of the pandemic and people are working from home and they're spending so much time together and then kids are home all the time or you have like older teens who are around. I mean, how do you freaking find time or space to fit it in? Um, it's just, it gets, it gets complicated. And as Marnie yeah. said, you know, we, we have teenagers and it, yeah, well, either they're gone all the time or they're home all the time. So yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I think we have to accept that we have a reality here. Um, This is the reality. We know that too much togetherness can breed contempt. Like 
get out of my face. Like I've seen enough of you. <laughs> I don't want mm-hmm. any. Yeah. Uh, so part of that is, you know, giving each other space, even in a, in a home, if you can, like give each other some some space. Um, doing activities outside the house as limited as they are today, but whatever it is, go for a drive, do something that is just the two of you that gets you out of your routine. I think, uh, you know, find a lot of people are uncomfortable having sex if their kids' rooms are right next door. I don't know, go in the shower, like take a bath, you know, go in the shower, take a shower together, lock the door, like find the places you can lock up and your kids will leave you alone, you know? Um, like you gotta get a bit creative in, in that sense. And you also have to give each other a bit of a pass. It's like, look, this is not what I want, not what you want, but this is the reality and let's just get through this and we'll be okay. You know, let's not like, we'll be okay. So we'll adapt to whatever we we can do. So you can just get a bit more creative and it may not be exactly what you want and may not be what you had before, but none of us are in a position of what we had before. So life has changed a lot. And we've got a lot of uh, people experiencing uh, anxiety for the first time. And it's just, you know, uh, stresses they never had before. And um, so I think we need a bit of compassion. And the more compassion you have, compassion leads to passion. I'll tell you that. So you feel that your partner's compassionate with you and you're compassionate with your partner. That goes a long way. I love that. And, you know, something that you said earlier reminded me of just the four love languages. And so trying to like prep and, you know, before you get in the bedroom, if you will, creating that environment and the relationship between the couple. And that's kind of what you're saying here now, you know, do things that, you know, make your partner happy, fill them up, bring them joy. And that will just hopefully help when maybe you, you don't have the time, but also when then you're in the moment, you're both ready and you're excited about it. Right. And imagine two people thinking the same thing, right? I want to bring you joy. I want to, I I want your happiness and you want my happiness. Well, then in that way, we make things work rather than pressuring each other. You're not giving me enough. You're not doing enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. When that happens, the other person pulls away. They're, They're not likely to go to do more. They're likely to have sex with you out of obligation and a chore just to shut you up. Is that what you really want? do we want that? We don't want that. And I know men don't want that either. They want you to want it and they want you to be there because you want to be there. Ultimately, if, if not, they're jerks. So, but yeah. ultimately, you know, most guys are pretty good guys that, that that's not, they want you to enjoy it. Absolutely. I love that. Um, I totally agree with that as well. You you said something about love languages. I would just want to go back to that because that's been on a lot of people's radar. A lot of people are reading and there's those tests online and whatever. And I I do love understanding what our love languages are, but there's something important here and people that often people don't understand. They say, well, that's how I show you love. So that's my love language, but it's more important to know what your partner's love language is and respond in their language. It's not about your language. It's about their language. So if your language is acts of service and your partner's language is affection, you have to become more affectionate for your partner. Even if it doesn't come naturally to you, you have to put the effort in because that's his language and vice versa. So it's good to understand our love language, but it's even more important to understand our partner's love language and respond in that way. That's what's useful in that, that whole thing. Absolutely. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. And, and would you say it's important for you to let your partner know what your love language is as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yes, because your partner is going to act in their love language and say, well, what do you mean? Of course I show you, I love you. I bring you coffee every morning. Yeah. And, or I buy you flowers every week. I said, I hate flowers. Right. Like yeah. I, I really don't care about flowers. You know, that's your, that's what's in your head. So here's my, this is what would matter to me. This is what it looks like to me. This is what feeling loved looks like to me. And then when you get, when you break it down in terms of what it looks like to you, 
now they have a better understanding and they have from a menu from which to pull. You can't just tell somebody, I need you to be more romantic. Well, maybe their idea of romance is bringing you flowers and buying you chocolate, but your idea is rubbing my feet or making dinner or, so you have to say, I want you to be more romantic, but here's what it looks like to me. And you make mm-hmm. a list and you give that list to your partner. I love that idea. That's a great idea. So what would you say for women that feel really intimidated by this conversation? You know, I think Stephanie and I are both pretty open, comfortable people, but I know a lot of women that would be very uncomfortable even listening to this conversation. So how would you... Did we say anything that drastic? No, but I think there are a lot of people that feel, I don't know if the word is repressed or, you know, like they were raised in a certain way and this this just makes them uncomfortable. Okay, but you know, do you know the expression life begins at the end of your comfort zone? Of course. Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> here's where you have to get uncomfortable. So yeah. yes, sometimes learning new things, yes, this show might make you blush. Yes, hearing me, you might cringe at some of the things that I'm saying. And you might think, oh, how could she say that? Or, you know, whatever it is. But like the more you listen and the more you understand that this is a natural part of all of us, it's okay to talk about it. We're not anomalies, the three of us just talking about this. We're here because we want to help people have more fulfilling lives. Sexuality is part of that fulfillment. So get past, get past your discomfort. Once mm-hmm. you start hearing this podcast, maybe tune into my podcast, maybe tune into others that talk about sexuality, suddenly you become less, you know, embarrassed by, by the talk. And that's how it, that's how it starts. Nobody's telling you go out and do this or do that. All we're just saying is just listen. Keep an open mind. Just listen a little bit. Take what you want out of it. You know, you may not want to apply all of this today. And that's perfectly okay. I respect where people are at. And we all have a journey and whatever, however that journey goes, you know. That's such great advice. And one, I love your podcast because you have very specific topics. So people can go on there and we'll link it all up in the show notes if there's one, you know, specific question or issue that they have. Um, So that's, and just understanding that this is part of life. This is part of, you know, why why we're here on earth. And so it's normal and it's healthy and just listening, I think will help probably break down those barriers and get people to step out of their comfort zone. And people do, you know, when I did my radio show for so many years, it was on a very conservative radio station, by the way. So I never thought it would last more than three months. Like I was like, you know, 22 years later, I'm like, whoa. And which tells me, that I underestimate our population too, right? So people may not necessarily feel comfortable themselves talking about it, but they're more than happy to get informed. And I've talked to many different age groups and older people are very interested in hearing about sexuality. They're, they are, they show great interest in it, even though you don't know it just by, you know, your everyday talks with them. So, but I got to see that, you know, just by the sheer numbers of people who were tuning in on a, on a nightly basis and the, and the feedback that I got of things that we never thought it would last. We thought we'd get booted out of there real quick, you know, because Mm -hmm. our topics were pretty, you know, we didn't shy away from anything. Um, But look that we did what the people wanted, you know, and the people wanted sex talk. (laughs) And and I'm sure that's true, actually, you know, it's almost like the more taboo or whatever it is, the more people are curious, right, to hear about it. Yes. And hearing it from not a place of um, not a place of sensationalism, but a place of professionalism where of course it can obviously have to be entertaining as well, but there is a, you know, the professional side of it and the evidence side of it, all of that brings a different, a bit of a different perspective to it. You know, it's not shock value here. This is, this is, a this is real life what we're talking about. Yeah. I, I, w- I wish I would have been listening to your show versus like, I used to listen to Howard Stern and nothing against him at all, but I spent years on my commute to work listening to him for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I'm a shocker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh, anyway, Dr. Lori. So as we start to wrap up the conversation, we love leaving our listeners with some practical and simple tips. And you've already peppered in so much to this conversation. But if there was just like one or two things that people could do um, this week, you know, yeah, to put, kind sex, of, put sex on the menu. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, I want you to think about it. I want you to plan, you know, that, think about it in terms of like, how long does it actually take? Is 20 minutes, you know, uh, 20 minutes out of your day, like put it, put an effort into it. You know, we're not asking for you to hang off the chandeliers here and spend three hours of your day. It's 20 minutes, 20 minutes where you get pleasure, 20 minutes where you get to relax. 20 minutes where you can ask for what you want and 20 minutes where you can feel close to your partner. What's or if you don't have a partner with yourself, right? With yourself. Exactly. So that's 20 minutes in one week. Please don't tell me you can't find it. I need, you know, put that as your, that is your challenge for this, for this week. (laughs) I love that. Great challenge for everybody listening to this podcast. Yeah. So where can people find you? So, oh, a little bit all over the place, but the easiest place, I suppose, is my website, which is drlaurie.com. It's D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E.com. If you go on YouTube and you just, uh, you know, uh, put, put my name up there, you'll see my couple of TED Talks that I did on the subject of sexuality, mostly female sexuality, sexuality and long-term relationships. My book, The Sex Bible for People Over 50, is available on Amazon. The podcast is called Passion with Dr. Lori, which is available on all um, podcast platforms. You can find me on social media. My last name is spelled B-E-T-I-T-O. So if you look up at Dr. Lori Batito, you will find me on all social media platforms as well. And you wanna send me questions, sexual questions, whatever, we answer them on every podcast. We answer questions, uh, listener questions. And uh, so I'm more than happy to help out. And I love we'll all your- of that up. Sorry, we'll yeah. link all of that up in the show notes. I was going to say. No, I was just the, the book that you mentioned, and I saw that you had written that book, and I was like, oh, I'm like, well, I'm going to a 50th birthday party tomorrow for a girlfriend. Is that appropriate? That's a, great to gift. Yeah. That gift. a lot of people have gotten that gift. In fact, I have a cousin who somebody got it for her, unknowing that she was my cousin. She looked at the bush. Oh my god! It was hysterical. So it was really that's um, really funny. Yes. It becomes very funny. On 50 year old. Yeah. You could put it together with a whole bunch of things, the candle and all that, you know, a bunch of fun stuff, right? A sex toy. Exactly. (laughs) That's, I love it. Um, Oh my God. So, as we wrap up this conversation, one question we like to ask all of our guests is what does the art of living well mean to you? To me, it means living a balanced life um, and a lot of self care. Uh, it, it, it's doing something you love to do. So for me, it's working in an area that I love, but also being able to have other interests, a balance with family life, marital life, and my own life. So having my own life matters, meaning I, you know, I'm an artist outside of this. I, go out with girlfriends, I do sports activities, I box, I do different things. And then I, you know, balance that out with couple time and what have you. So for me, it's, it's about finding that balance. Can't work all the time. You need that downtime, making sure there's room for that. The same way you make sure there's room for your couple, you have to make sure there's room for me time. And, uh, and to me, that's, that's living well, but the attitude is the most important. So going into, uh, you know, having an attitude where, look, I will worry about the things I can control and not worry about the things I can't control. So the things I can control, fine. I, you know, I'm solution focused. I'll find a way um, and just have a more, just more of a positive outlook. And I think that makes a huge difference. It reduces stress a lot when the attitude you bring to the table uh, is more positive, but that's a practice being positive, being negative is natural to us. This is built into our, you know, system here. So being positive takes work. So work on that. Like I challenge you too, to, to start thinking in a more positive way. I love mm, that. Love that. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation and one we know is going to be so, um, it's going to resonate with all of our listeners and really be educational and enlightening and 
um, help them exciting, achieve maybe. balance. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, it will help them find their art of living well. Let's put it that, that way. Nice. <laughs> my pleasure. All right. Have a great day. Have a great Thank day. You too. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at theartofliving underscore well on Instagram and Facebook where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well.